and welcome to the Communication Studies Podcast. My name is Justin Young. I'm a faculty member in the School of Communication Studies at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And this week we have a very special episode that ties into the SIU Conference on Women. Our keynote speakers are our guests this week, Dr. Robin Boylorn and Isha Pandit. Hello, welcome to both of you. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. Um, Robin is the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, the, is it the Hall or Holly Endowed Chair? Holly. Holly Endowed Chair of Communication Arts at the University of Alabama. She's a full professor of interpersonal and intercultural communication in the Department of Communication Studies, the editor of Communication and Critical Cultural Studies. Um, and the author of the book, Sweetwater, Black Women and Narratives of Resilience. Isha is the co-founder and managing partner of, uh, at the Center for Advocating Innovative Policy, a think tank that harnesses grassroots wisdom. She's a writer and activist. She has consulted for uh, various organizations, including United We Dream, uh, Women with a Vision, National Resource Center for Domestic Violence, and others, and the former executive director for Men Stopping Violence. So I feel like that's a, a pretty big laundry list of achievements. So just to give people an idea of uh, both of you and your qualifications and where you're kind of coming from and everything. Um, Robin, I wanted to start with you. So as we've been interviewing faculty members within our department, one of the questions that I always ask them is, how did you end up in communication studies? Uh, kind of what was your path in, uh, into communication studies as a field? And so I wondered if you kind of enlighten us a little bit about uh, what brought you into communication studies as a discipline. Sure. So um, I was actually an English major um, as an undergraduate um, first. So my intentions going into my um, higher education was to just use do English. And I took some communication studies courses that was a minor. Um, but once I realized after taking public speaking that I enjoyed talking <laughs> as much as writing, um, I was kind of pulled into communic more communication studies courses and ended up double majoring in English and communication studies as um, at that time. So I, um, as a master's student, I, when I went back for a master's degree, initially my intention again was to get an MFA, um, but because of financial circumstances at the time, frankly, MFA programs were all um, full-time and I was working full-time because I had student loans full-time. So I, I, I wasn't able to move into the MFA program. And so I decided to uh, apply for the MA in communication studies. I didn't really, admit, admittedly, I'm not sure that I knew what that meant or what that would, what that would, where that path would take me because my intention was not to become a professor or an academic or a scholar um, because I was a creative writer. So it was actually during my master's degree and um, being um, mentored by Bud Goodall, who was uh, the department chair at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro at the time, and him introducing me to autoethnography 
that made um, an academic career seem feasible in a way that it hadn't before through the discipline of communication studies and not solely through, you know, um, uh, an English degree or creative writing or fine arts degree. All right. I, I think I hear very similar stories from a lot of our faculty. They started out in English, myself included, um, and then somehow at some point transition over into uh, the current discipline. So I think that's kind of a universal story within our field. Um, Isha, uh, I'm kind of wondering, how does one become an activist? Um, I mm. think that's something that a lot of people feel that there are causes, there are issues that they're very passionate about, but they're not quite sure how to um, turn that into a career for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. I think, uh, well, some of it comes from having a sense of um, like a commitment to intervention, <laughs> to sort of seeing things that don't seem right to you and then feeling as though you you cannot rest until you engage uh, with those questions and those things. Um, but, you know, I studied philosophy in college and in graduate school, and uh, I was most interested in the issues of social social justice, identity, um, just the big, the big sort of uh, questions of justice of our time. And I really felt pulled between doing work, theoretical work, and doing organizing and activist work in my early years. I, I went and worked between college and graduate school, and I did reproductive justice organizing at that time. And uh, when I went back to grad school, I felt um, I was studying philosophy. I was in rooms where I was almost always the only woman and the only person of color. And I just felt that my work in the world was to, you know, I felt really pulled and I sometimes think about paths not taken, but not too much because I feel very connected with um, and connected to social justice work. And, but that was it. There was a decision point for me where I was like, do I pursue these questions of justice and equity in a theoretical sense and then sort of have activism and organizing on the side, or am I going to make a career from this? And um, and I just felt the way I made the decision was who and how do I want to spend the majority of my time? And I really felt pulled to spell the, spend the majority of my time in community with people who shared my values. And that's how I made that decision. And um, so the Crank Feminist Collective and our work writing is a place where I get to do some of the writing and thinking um, at the bigger picture level. And then on a day to day, I'm doing policy advocacy work with grassroots organizations around the country and really in the granularity of social change. And that striking that balance has been a journey for me, like a, a decade and a half long journey to find that balance between thinking about big, the, you know, the bigger questions and then working on practical social change. All right. Um, you mentioned the Crunk Feminist Collective and let's just jump right into that. Um, first off, can you tell us what crunk is, the, uh, the first part of that? Because I think that's a term that probably a lot of people aren't familiar with. Hmm. Yeah, Go ahead, so, Rob, Robin. So, <laughs> so crunk, is, crunk is a very uh, uh, Southern term, you know, kind of popularized through um, Southern hip hop. And so it, um, 
you know, um, in the early in the early 2000s, that iteration of Crunk was really referencing this disorientation and um, ability to kind of buck back at at uh, at anything that was kind of coming for you or coming for your humanity. Um, and mm-hmm. so we kind of use that term within the Crunk Feminist Collective as a way of uh, of. Uh, holding people accountable, right, and responding and reacting in ways that may not always be the most uh, politically correct or uh, polite, but in ways that kind of hold people accountable for um, getting crunk is, you know, kind of, uh, if you have to, um, getting kind of um, responding to disrespect in in, in in an equally disorienting way, right? Um, mm-hmm. But we've also used it within the Quant Feminist Collective to kind of identify ourselves um, and our identities from this marginalized perspective um, as a way of saying we're, we're not going to be passive, you know, but we're going to be very um, not just progressive, but aggressive in our means of responding to injustice and invisibility. So what is the Crunk Feminist Collective as a, as a whole? E, you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Crunk Feminist Collective um, was a space, I think I came onto it when it was a, became a blog. But before that, it was a, it was a, a space of feminist collectivity, a space of camaraderie and um, a place where women who were, um, women and men, and were largely in, um, academia and we're sort of needing a community space to be fully present and fully oneself um, because sometimes academic spaces and other professional spaces require us to cordon off certain parts of our identity or we're asked to do that and that's a very dehumanizing experience and so the crunk feminist collective came as a place of uh, fullness and in response to some of the challenges of being women and men of color in academia. And then we started a blog in uh, 2010. I think the blog started. Um, this is like the double edge of getting older is that you just kind of casually remember dates. <laughs> it's like, it's, about, it's been about a decade. Um, and so... Um, it's okay. The, and, the last two years have felt like 20 years. So I don't think yeah, any of us are good with dates years. at this point. <laughs> 20 years, five minutes, depending on the day. Um, And so the blog became a space to work out some of these ideas that Robin um, laid out so beautifully in, in public, in community, and with other folks who were dealing with these questions of how to be, um, how to practice a feminist politic, how to practice a black feminist politic, how to learn from the, the things that we, Many of us, myself included, felt so seen by in the Black feminist theory that I read as a student and bringing that into my day-to-day life as an activist, uh, as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, um, as a partner, as a colleague, all of that. So what does Black, what is the feminist theory that we read about? How does that show up in our lives? How do we practice it with each other? There is an external facing piece of that work, which is the writing that we do, the events that we do, the public speaking. This is one of our external facing pieces of of doing that work. And then there is 
the real feminist, the feminist collectivity and intimacy of our relationships with each other and the way that we know each other and support each other through now what has been over a decade of, um, and a lot of life <laughs> together. And it's an, it's another way. So there is sort of the, the intimate feminist collectivity and practice that we all have of being together and being there for each other and being present with each other. And then there's the work that we do publicly in which we write about our lives and theorize our own experiences in that way. And so those are the pieces of the Crunk Feminist Collective. All right. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was that as a woman of color, that you feel like there are times that you have to hide parts of your identity in, in public or even academia. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe expound on that, like give an example, maybe not a specific example if that's uncomfortable, but examples where you might feel that need to, to hide or shield a part of yourself. I think I said it so I can start, but I, you know, I feel like maybe hide is the wrong word. I think as I get um, older and I feel more bolstered by my own community, I think hiding is not necessarily what we're doing anymore, but it's sort of mm. bristling against bristling against being in spaces and structures that weren't intended for us to be there and be visible. And so I do policy work and I often encounter um, a lot of mythology of who policy experts are. My colleague in my policy work is another woman of color. Um, and when the two of us sort of show up in a space as the policy experts, um, it's often it's often clear that that's not who folks were expecting or what they imagine when they think of as a policy expert. Um, and so it's kind of making, so there's two pieces of that. There's, there's the um, negotiating what it feels like to be in spaces that are not for you. We're not designed for your presence. And so then having to sort of find ways to fit in those spaces while expanding the definitions that are around us. And that's a different kind of work, right? So there's the work of doing the advocacy that I do. And then there's the work of, um, dealing with the imposter syndrome, dealing with the um, micro and macro aggressions, that's the other piece of the work. And I think one of the things that the Crunk Feminist Collective offered us was ways of understanding what was happening to us, that it wasn't about us, it was about these structures we were operating in, and also uh, not feeling alone while navigating them. And that's the piece of feminist collectivity that's really key, one of the most life-saving things that can happen for someone who's struggling in institutions and structures that aren't for them is when someone says, you're not crazy. That's really happening to you. And that, you know, like that's really going on. You don't, you shouldn't, the problem is not you, you know, and that I feel like is um, a feminist practice and a black feminist practice to really um, it's validation. It's solidarity. It's a uh, lack of, um, cause you know, sometimes if I say, oh, you know, this thing happened, someone who maybe doesn't share that value will say, oh, I'm sure that's not what they meant. That's wow. not what happens in the crunk feminist collective. If I say this messed up thing happened or someone said this thing and it made me feel small and made me feel like I didn't belong. Um, my, you know, comrades in the CFC will say, girl, that's messed up and that shouldn't have happened, you know? And so the validation of your experience um, as a practice of feminism is really key in making 
this hard work that we do, the work itself, and then the work inside these structures, uh, sustainable and uh, prevents against the kind of um, spirit crushingness that can happen from constantly mm -hmm. having to do both kinds of work. So it's a bit of a response to gaslighting, it sounds like, whether done with intent or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Robin, would you like to add anything? Um, I think that Isha said that really eloquently and beautifully. I don't know that I have anything, because I think that definitely the crunk feminist space has been an affirming one right, um, where you can feel seen and believed and um, and also be able to put the traumatic experiences that you have in conversation with other people. Because so often um, as women and women of color in particular, we are both hyper, uh, hyper visible and um, invisible simultaneously. So it's like we're seen in these very stereotypic ways, but we're not allowed to be vulnerable, right? So I think one, like, for example, you know, as a Black woman, I think that there is an expectation of strength that never allows me to be human. And so with my CFs, I can be human. I can be myself. I don't have to fall apart for them to believe me, right? And um, I can I can say the thing and then we can kind of go from there instead of having to express some kind of performance of um, disassembly, right? And then it'd be like, oh, let's help Robin. I can literally just say the thing I need or say the thing um, or, or be able to, to call, some, call one of them and just kind of talk through um, an issue. And that has been life-saving because feminism is intended to be practiced in community, I think. And we mm -hmm. don't always have models for that. Um, another interesting thing about the crunk, the crunk feminist collective is that, you know, is just, is this taking this terminology, this crunk, this term crunk that comes from misogynistic hip hop and attaching it to feminism feels oxymoronic. And I think that in many ways, our presence in these spaces, as Isha has, um, has expressed, feels oxymoronic. So it's like, how can we bring our full selves um including the, the the opportunities and necessities of disruption into these spaces without being thrown out of them, right? Um, mm -hmm. And how can we be empowered at the same time? So I think that there's a balance, there's a dance that we do um, as women of color, as feminists, um, as people who are invested in creating a more just world for ourselves and others that kind of requires a, cer a certain embrace of oxymoronic identity. So you addressed how women of color can help one another through the Crunk Feminist Collective or, or just as colleagues within uh, the workplace. Uh, the title of this conference is Advocates and Allies. So how can people who are, are men or women not, uh, you know, not of color, how can they be better advocates and allies so that... Um, you know, women of color aren't encountering these issues in the workplace so often. I mean, there's obvious things I think that you've kind of already touched on of not not being shocked when a woman of color shows up in a, a position. Um, but are, are there more tangible things that people could be advocating for or could be doing to make people feel more comfortable? I think that's an important question. E, what do you think? 
Yeah, well, we'll be talking a little bit about this and what it means to be an ally or not in our keynote tomorrow. But I would say, I don't know, I always have the same, a similar answer to this question. And it's never totally satisfying, I think. But it is that the way to, um, I mean, I think about it from my own perspective. You know, I am a South Asian, a queer South Asian immigrant woman in the United States. And there's experiences that I have um, that, uh, you know, other people don't have, but I'm also part of a black feminist collective. And so I ask myself this question is like how to be in active solidarity with um, the black women that I'm in this collective with, or the organizers that I work with, or on the issues that I work on, the lived experiences with whom I don't share, but values with whom I do share. And so to me, the answer to that is that there's not really a to-do list. It comes from the two practices that are really key for this is being in honest and deep relationship with the people who you want to be uh, in solidarity with. Like solidarity is not sort of something you do from a distance with people. Um, If you, because otherwise you, then you wind up speculating, right? Like you wind up doing a charity Mm -hmm. model or a speculative approach to here's how to help rather than being in community, being connected to knowing people, um, having deeper intimacies and relational um, experiences with folks. Like that's really key. Um, And any of us that have ever felt like experienced like charity from someone else knows what that feels like, right? It does not feel like justice. It does not feel like solidarity. It feels different and not good, right? So I think that to me is key is like the relational piece. And the other piece of it is like just a willingness to to be wrong, to learn, to be open, and you can't really have that with people who you don't know. You can't have that kind of vulnerability with people who you don't know and people who you don't care about as people and who you're not in relationship with. And so there's not really a checklist other than, you know, make your, the relational work is the work. Um, the work of intimacy is the work. And that is work that requires trust to get in, to do, you know, um, I feel as though after the uprisings of June 2020, there were a lot of things going around on social media about how to be an ally and how to, you know, like there was a lot of that happening. People wanted, it comes from a beautiful and powerful impulse. How do I not do harm? How do I help? How do I undermine the privilege that I have that I don't want, that I don't, you know, that I want to negotiate? Um, and there isn't, unfortunately, like a list of things you can do. I think it requires deciding who you want to be accountable to and then doing the hard work of being an accountable, being accountable to those folks. For me, that has to do in my political work. It has to do with the organizations that I work with, the organizations that I don't work for. It has to do with being um, vulnerable in certain ways and saying, here's what I don't understand. Here's what uh, makes sense to me. And I can do those things and be cognizant of the space I take up and the work that I'm asking people to do with me because those people are my colleagues and comrades at a deeper level than 
um, the kind of superficial, hey, I know you, I know this identity of yours, and now I'm going to want to be, you know, it has to be a consent-based dynamic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like being in solidarity with someone yeah. is a relational act. Um, and mm. so that's what I'll say about that. I hope that's not too confusing, but that's where I'm at with it these days. No, I think that's a really good answer. And I, I think it does address the issue for a lot of people when, um, you know, I think you point out really great. I saw this with many people I knew who desperately wanted to be uh, an ally, um, uh, particularly with the the protests in June of 2020 in response to George Floyd. Um, and they didn't know how to go about it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they were afraid to go about it in the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right that that often has to do with not knowing anybody that they're already being an ally to, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they want to jump to the end result, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Robin, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think people want to jump to the to being comfortable, right? And to knowing. Um, and, and, and it's a process. Allyship, if it is if if it is an aspirational thing for people, is a process, right? Um, it's, there's not a ten step formula for it, and I think that Isha is absolutely right in terms of relationship because one of the things that I find to be most problematic in those contexts is when when someone has their one black friend or their one friend of color, and that and they think that that then means that they are connected right? Mm -hmm. Through that one person and that one relationship. So if they've said a thing that doesn't offend their friend, then it shouldn't offend any person of color on the planet. Like, you know, my friend lets me use the N-word. Why are you mad? Like such and such doesn't care. And so I think that there's a way in which there has to be um, a reckoning with the fact that we are not monolithic Mm -hmm. um, or homogenous as people and in understanding the nuances. And because there is also a way that we are not, you know, people of color, especially in moments like summer 2020, right? Um, There was so much happening. People of color are not, um, they don't want to, but nor are they responsible for educating white people about their racism, right? Like those are things that can be Googled. So it's like, don't put the responsibility on someone who is literally navigating and navigating trauma in the moment to bring you mm-hmm. up to speed and, you know, in ways on how you can be helpful because that, you know, and I think, um, and this has been something that has been discussed on the blog. I think that um, Susanna Morris did a piece um, some time ago for white people to get their people, right? And so I think one one really valued thing that a, that a white ally can do in moments like that is to educate other white people so that white people aren't asking people of color these questions, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. you can do your own research, but also ask people who you know are already in alliance and already in those relationships that Isha was talking about, because let them be, let them be the conduit, but don't, don't then ask a person of color who is, who has just watched another person of color be murdered on, be murdered. And, you know, what, what do you need? Right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like when someone is in crisis, they can't always articulate that. Find another Mm -hmm. avenue. Right. Mm -hmm. And So I think that that is, you know, that would just be a good tactic to not rely on people of color to 
be your dictionary to, you know, to be your resource of information when there are, there are so many ways to get this information, right? Mm -hmm. Just like, Mm -hmm. like, like he said, even a good starting point might be uh, one of, one of those, one of those well-meaning, but problematic articles about how to be an ally. Start there, (laughs) go ask them, right? Um, Because I don't, because what I need personally in the moment may not be the thing that other people need. Right. And also, and this is from 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 a lens of, of activism, and um, is is the thing is 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 what resources do you have access to that you can that you can direct in the you know toward the problem, mm-hmm. um, and whether those resources are your white privilege, whether those resources are you know networks, money, you know, like what what do you have that can help other than mm-hmm. your good intentions, and then direct that toward the issue. All right. Thank you. Um, One of the things that I I think is uh, maybe one of those resources that you're talking about is obviously the blog, the the archives up of the blog that, you know, from the Crunk Feminist uh, Collective. And you've actually um, together authored a book. And I wasn't quite 100% clear. The book is called The Crunk Feminist Collection. Is it a collection of, of essays from the blog? It is. Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, I actually had a chance to read a little bit of the book and everything, uh, and I enjoyed it. And that seemed like maybe a good place to start before you ask any questions to actually, you know, as I like to tell students sometimes, do a little bit of research before you go ask the question so that you at least know why you're asking the question or, you know, Mm -hmm. where to go with it. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your two essays in there, um, or I, I think you may have had more than one essay, but the two that I read. Um, Robin, you wrote one called The Evolution of a Down-Ass Chick, um, which is a, a fun title. Yes. That's a great piece. <laughs> uh, That's one of my favorites of Robin. And and I kind of wanted to uh, to ask you about that, you know, maybe uh, explain it to our audience briefly, uh, kind of what the essay is, is about, um, and, you know, maybe give them a little bit of a tease of it so that they might want to go read a bit more of it. Awesome. So the the evolution of a down-ass chick was, a, was an article that I wrote many, many um years ago, but it was a way of kind of, of thinking about and critiquing um, problematic and patriarchal uh, uh, context of Black love and uh, heterosexual relationships and how Black women are kind of situated in those relationships. So a down-ass chick is essentially, particularly back when I was in high school, right, um, was a um, it was a term used for women who were down for their man, no matter what, right? So no matter how he treated her, no matter if he was disrespectful or dishonest or unfaithful or incarcerated, what, whatever was going on with him, a down ass chick was going to be for her man and standing by her man and defending her man, no matter what, to her own, many times to her own detriment. And so in, in the evolution of a down ass chick, I essentially critique that you know, critique that character, that character, caricature or characterization of black women in these relationships, challenging them to resist it. Right. Like that was cute, you know, when we were 16, 17. But when you're a grown woman, a grown ass woman. Right. What should your expectations in black love be? 
right? And what what should your um, in, in what way should you be managing your um, your own not just identity but ego, right? Like to be able to what 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 might it mean for us to take a black feminist ethic into the context of a of a black love romantic uh, romantic relationship with with a man? And so mm-hmm. the evolution of a downness chick kind of traces that and I think uses some popular culture examples of women who were, you know, who are still doing that, like like it's still 1996, you know, who were like, yeah, he does this and that, but I'm but I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a stick by him. And so kind of challenging women to have better, you know, um, have expectations beyond the stereotype of toxic black masculinity. Um, because it also is a way of ingratiating that, right? Of enabling toxic masculinity and romantic relationships. So what might it mean to resist that? I hope that's a good explanation. It's been a while since I read that piece. <laughs> no, I, I read it uh, just in the last couple of days. And so that sounded like a, a very good summation of it. Uh, one of the notes in that that kind of stuck out to me was you said in being in the classroom um, and being an advocate for black male students, that they were often surprised when you would um, you would say, "Look, I'm not I'm not this. I'm you know uh, I, I love the end of the essay, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything. But you say I'm not a down ass chick. I'm a grown ass down ass chick, and um, I thought that was really funny. Um, but you said that for students often, right? Like because you're laid back, because you're kind of uh, approachable to them they have this expectation of you. Uh, and the impression I got, you meant specifically the black male students and maybe that expectation was coming from media uh, depictions of women and what their expectation of you based on um, being laid back Absolutely. meant that you were. Yeah. That I was down for them or that, or that, my, or that me being down for black men would look a, a certain way. Right. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. I am down for you but I'm also going to hold you accountable, right? Like being down for black men doesn't mean allowing black men to be patriarchal assholes. Can I say that? Yeah. Um, (laughs) We've already said ass several times. Okay. Um, You know, so I think that, yeah, there there was, there's definitely a disconnect there in in their surprise and my surprise at their surprise, but also, um, you know, kind of helping them to dismantle the stereotypes they have of black women, but also the stereotypes they have of feminism. Because I'm like, I'm a feminist. Why would you not think I would have, you know, a different set of of, of expectations of you um, or mm. a different set of expectations for romantic partners? And um, so that, so yeah, it's always, it's always fun to kind of think about that, but it's especially fun to think about like the evolution of a down ass chick. Cause if I was ever that, I'm definitely not that now, but, but, but just the allowance of evolution writ large because we are you know we are always evolving and becoming different and hopefully better versions of ourselves Mm. Mm -hmm. well speaking of evolution uh isha your piece that i read was how did um how did i become a feminist and Mm -hmm. in that piece you talk about um this was not a a lightning bolt strike one day and suddenly I'm a feminist that it was a, a collection of events throughout your life that, uh, that brought you there. And you talked about, you already mentioned earlier about being a philosophy major and you talk about sitting in your philosophy classes, 
you specifically talk about an incident when you were in high school of um, of helping another young student um, who was uh, searching for a Planned Parenthood um, uh, location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk, if maybe not specifically about the essay, I realize maybe you don't remember all the specific examples that you give, but uh, about this idea that that feminism is an, an evolutionary act in a lot of ways for, uh, mm-hmm. for people. Um, if you could talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's one of the things that I have learned being in community with of the other writers in the CFC, that one of the things that's really important part of our feminist practice is being, um, is tracing our feminist genealogies. How did we get to the place that we got? How how do we think about the things? Why do we think about the things we do? Um, I love uh, Sarah Ahmed's book, Living a Feminist Life. She does a version of this in that too, where she sort of tracks how, um, and and she captures something really, which now that book hadn't wasn't out when I wrote this for this essay, but um, for the first time. But she captures the moments where you realize that something isn't right here. You know, like it's the littler. There are, of course. I remember when I wrote this essay, somebody in the comments wrote, "These are hardly injustices." Your examples that you've given. Um, you know, they were like kind of really being dismissive of the examples that I wrote to share. And this goes to Robin's point earlier of, first of all, that wasn't what I was doing. It wasn't a list of my worst experiences as a woman <laughs> as a, and a person of color, right? Like that's not something that I am perhaps one of the folks that writes the least about my personal. I write a lot about politics and policy in the CFC. This was a, a, an effort for me to sort of track the mo- the aha moments that I had. And that's a political practice too, is like learning, like what are the moments where you realize that like something wasn't right, even if you maybe didn't have the language of feminism or you maybe didn't understand that feminism was for you. It wasn't until I read Bell Hooks in college that I realized that feminism could be for me too. I definitely thought it was uh, something that came out of privilege um, and that it was something that white women did until I read Bell Hooks. Um, And that was a moment where where I sort of felt myself in the trajectory of feminist, feminism. Um, but I think it's, in, it's interesting and important. A reason I wrote it was to sort of publicly track and to make clear that these moments that it feels like, you know, where you feel like something is, something is off and should I say something and what's going on here doesn't feel right. Or the moments that blindside you where you're sort of sitting and you're having a conversation with someone, they say something so sexist right out of, you know, you're just like, wait, what what happened there? And in some ways, it's a practice. It's a practice of consciousness raising, of raising your own consciousness, being aware of what's happening to you, why it's happening to you, and then seeking out explanation for that. You know, in that way, it's um, feminism is a constant practice of excavation. You're sort of well, how come I felt this way? How come this thing happened to me? How do I understand? It's a lens for understanding the world. And for those of us who have kind of felt like, oh, something funny is going on here. Like what's going on here? This doesn't feel right or good. Um, it's a way of understanding that, you know? And so what I was doing in that essay was tracking some of those moments for me that I felt like the uh, like a little spark of aha, like something's not I may not have had the theoretical language in that moment, you know, as a as a 
I think I was 14 or 15 when um, someone I hardly knew in high school in Texas asked me, you know, well, where can I go? And, you know, how can I find a Planned Parenthood? How do I do that? And I remember thinking in that moment, it's really intense that she's having to talk to me, a virtual stranger about this. What could that be about? Why am I the person she's asking? Um, And it was a moment of understanding like, well, other people in her life and in her community might not be safe for her to talk to. They might not offer her sort of an unbiased, supportive hand. Um, And maybe, you know, she knows that as a young person. And so I I remember feeling that, you know, just as an example of that uh, uh, moment where I felt like something's wrong here, that she's having to do this and that I'm having to be the one to help her. Um, And it was when I traced back why and how I started working on reproductive justice, it's one of those, it's one of those moments. It's a moment that was the spark for me and that there's a lot of injustice here. And there's a lot of lack of support and access. Um, And it was, you know, kind of an interesting node of understanding. And I think, you know, even to the previous conversation about allyship and, and it's important to understand yourself and your own impulses and your own story as a part of whatever social justice work you want to do in the world. Um, And that, that piece of work is as important as the sort of externalized work that you do, you know, on behalf of the issues you care about, things like that. I want to talk about the reproductive justice some more in a minute, but I want to go back to something that you said that um, early on, you didn't feel like feminism was something for you because you felt like it was something, a, a privilege. And I wonder kind of what you mean by that. Was it because because as a, a woman of color, you felt like um, that otherness like separated you from p- feminism um, or. Yeah, I think it's a, um, I mean, I definitely always has feminist impulses, even as a kid where I noticed the different treatment between boys and girls. And I think a lot of us know that, but it was like the label, you know, like, would I call myself this? Am I strident in this way that I imagine? I think it was like feminism had really bad PR for a long time. You know, it was like not communicated well. It was just like a bunch of angry people. And I was like, well, that's not who I am. I don't hate the men and boys of my life. That's not, that's not what I am. Um, And also, do I feel that strongly? And then I think it was, you know, it was the language in college and then meeting other women of color who said, this is, this is how I identify. And here's why I identify this way. Um, that allowed me the, the space to come up with my own definition of it. And, uh, which was really grounded in a, de- in a black, in black feminist, uh, writing. And so that's one, you know, that's really, that's another part of my feminist genealogy is that it wasn't until, I read black feminist writers that I felt like, okay, here I am, even though they were writing from their own experience, but it was such a vast, capacious understanding of gender identity injustice that there was space for me inside of it. And I felt very, um, uh, like I felt it illuminated a lot for me and it made, it made it make sense to me. And I found a space inside of, um, black feminist writing for my own feminism. And that has that has consistently been true for me. And that's why I've located myself and my political analysis the way that I have. 
um, it has been a political home. It has been like an emotional home as well for me um, to be working and thinking alongside Black feminist scholars and thinkers. Um, okay, so to go back to about your work in reproductive justice, um, I did read a, a piece that you had wrote for Salon back in 2016, um, mm. and it was titled um, Legal and Still a Crime, Abortion Laws to Watch Out for in Trump's America. Um, that seems very prophetic now, given um, the laws passed in Texas and Idaho, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some additional ones. There's other ones mm-hmm. going through state legislatures, I know, currently. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe a- address that um, about the fight for reproductive justice that's currently going on um, at yeah. very much at the state level, but also even at the Supreme Court level? Yeah. Um, we are in what is, uh, uh, I think can be described as like a virulent backlash (laughs) moment, uh, to reproductive rights, um, to the, you know, people being able to control their fertility. I don't see the fight for reproductive rights, the restriction of of abortion access as, um, politically or conceptually separate from the thing that's happening that's targeting trans kids in Texas right now, uh, where I live. And um, I see all of these as as a reactionary backlash to an expanding idea of gender and control and power that groups, that people um, are asserting and have been asserting and have been making space for that is seen as confusing or upending a certain, I mean, I see it as related to a demographic backlash, a political backlash, you know, that's, that's where I locate what's happening. Um, It's a reaction. It's a reaction to um, feeling disempowered. It's a reaction for the, the lawmakers that are putting this kind of legislation up are feeling that somehow someone else's control of their own fertility or gender means that they have less power. To control those people, right? So this, to me, cannot be understood without a power analysis. Um, what's happening now is that a range of very regressive state legislation has been moving through, making it a crime not just to seek an abortion after uh, as early as four or five weeks, um, but to help someone from doing it. And that same the same thing is true of the um, the anti-trans legislation. It's the parents and the doctors that are being targeted. And I think what's really powerful and telling about that is that to when you target the helpers, when you target the people that are helping other people control their fertility, live you know authentically in their with their gender and in their bodies, uh, you create a real chill chilling effect in society. And I think it's quite brazen. So there's a, a, court, a case in the Supreme Court um, that comes from a Mississippi law that would essentially um, upend Roe v. Wade, which is a you know legal right to an abortion. Um, and many states have put into place what is very appropriately but scarily called trigger laws, which is if over Roe gets over. Roe v. Wade gets overturned, 
a lot of those states will have laws in place that immediately go into effect and make abortion illegal. There's a whole range of uh, things that could happen short of that. But overwhelmingly, the feeling is that what we're going to have happen sometime this summer is a severe restriction on access to abortion care. Um, We're seeing a similar kind of chilling effect around a range of different things. And, you know, what happens when you make something illegal in certain places is the same thing that was happening in this country before 1973 when Roe v. Wade passed, which is that people who have money, people who have access will always be able to get the health care that they need. It's the folks that don't have those resources that won't be able to fly to a state where it's not illegal, that won't be able to get the time off um, from work to do that, um, that won't be able, that don't have access to regular health care, that wouldn't know. Um, you know, I live in a state where comprehensive sex ed just doesn't happen. And then you tell people that they have to know, you know, within a couple of weeks of when they're pregnant. And like, how do you imagine people would know that if you're not teaching anybody anything about how their body works? You know, so it's a right. real kind of conflation of public health and uh, criminalization, it's, it's a recipe for disaster and for real disempowerment. Um, and so I think that's what we're headed towards. And it, I feel, and many of my colleagues, we all feel beleaguered. But the thing that happens in the wake of that is what has always happened, which is um, underground and outside extra legal sets of services arise. And I think this is a great place where talk about allyship in the past year, since the, um, the, in the past years, I see women talking about reproductive rights and justice. I don't see a lot of men talking about it, except as sometimes you see sort of advocates talking about the trends, you know, the political trends. This is a great place to figure out your allyship and, you know, like to speak about, and I, I feel this is true as a cisgender person. I feel like that's why I make sure to talk about how this conflation of control over bodily autonomy and around gender and around reproductive rights are this they're the same it's the same people who are make who believe that these things are dangerous, you know? And so I feel like it's really important that we draw those connections and that we act in solidarity around both of these things. That we don't carve out certain things and leave others, you know, um, because it's a, there's a lot of vulnerability. I and mean, I'm just really thinking about how afraid people are, trans people are right now in my state um, and how they're all, the prosecutions and the legal challenges are already starting. And uh, I think of those things as connected. And I think our work now is to connect them and to sort of fight for them as connected. And there's a winning strategy in that, if you ask me, because if you link together all the folks that are being targeted and you create a coalition that acknowledges that we are all operating, that many of us are being targeted, then you have a much bigger and potentially more powerful coalition. If we allow ourselves to be broken off based on the particular thing that impacts just us, um, then we are less powerful. And so that's my strategy in making these connections. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Robin, you do a radio commentary series for Alabama Public Radio called Crunk Culture. 
Um, and um, these are about four minute or so long, uh, quick commentaries on uh, on. It seemed like a lot of them like kind of ripped from the headlines, what's ever in the news at the moment and everything to address. Um, and I, I wanted to talk to you about one because it's one I talked to students about in, uh, in some of my classes. So you did one on missing white woman syndrome. Um, so this idea that um, we, we often see, and of course, you know, um, John Benet Ramsey or, um, or Chandra Levy or any of these cases that really raise to national attention and everything. I think everybody's kind of familiar with it that when we do see a big missing person case, it is almost always a attractive upper middle class white woman who is the focus of that. Um, could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about that and, and maybe about what the media could be doing better uh, in response to this issue? Yes, of course. First of all, I just want to say that I am, I am an Isha Panda fangirl and was getting my <laughs> life on, on her discussion. The feeling is mutual. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of the crunk culture commentary on missing white woman syndrome and um, and the ways in which you know white women are the idealized perfect victim to the exclusion of everybody else and how and why that becomes a very you know a very problematic way of of um, of discerning who deserves to be found who deserves justice and who doesn't. Um, you know, Gwen Eiffel is the person who is credited for that terminology, um, but it goes back to um, the ways that a particular aesthetic and a particular type of person are those that deserve the media attention. Um, and when we think about what we see and, and how we are taught um, who is a victim and who is a perpetrator, you know, there is an overrepresentation of, of of white women as victims, and an overrepresentation of black people, black men in particular, as criminals and perpetrators. And so, when you have a case of of um, of a woman who goes missing, you know, I think one of the one of the things that, that that's problematic about that is that you have an idealized victim, but you don't always have the expected perpetrator because the people, you know, in particular. Um, of uh, Petito, but in most of these cases, the person who has done harm to this white woman is a white man, right? But the story becomes about the missing, you know, the, the what makes this missing, this beautiful, young, so much potential um, white woman, um, the, in, the focus of all of these stories nationwide, mm -hmm. as if there are not missing black women and girls nationwide, perpetually whose name we never hear, right? And so I think that, and and as if white men are not committing crimes, right, at, at the same rate as, as black men, but we never hear. So I think that one of the things I wanted to get across with that, with that piece was kind of bringing attention to what we pay attention to, right, and why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with how media, how media frames stories and how media decides which stories are worth telling. And you know, and I think one of the main the main things that um, that a lot of people who were talk who were critiquing it 
was saying is that it's not that it's not that that white women should be ignored when they are missing and when they are victimized, but it's just that everybody should be um, amplified and 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 we should be trying to find and find and get justice for everybody and not just um, the quote unquote perfect victims. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your other commentaries that I was particularly interested in, I think this was the last one that was actually posted up onto the site, was about the name, image, and likeness rules in the NCAA. And um, when you talk about, you know, I think one of the recurring things that we've talked about today is perception versus reality. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in that piece is you said everyone's knee-jerk reaction to this name, image, and likeness rule that is the rule that allows NCAA college athletes to... uh, to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. So to, uh, you know, sell a t-shirt with their picture on it, let's say, um, or endorse products, that sort of thing. Um, the sort of knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people, and myself included, uh, when I first, you know, saw this get passed was, well, this is going to benefit the basketball and football players, uh, particularly the male basketball and football players, but maybe the very top echelon of the women's uh, players. But it, it's not going to really benefit anyone else in college sports, and it's probably going to disproportionately benefit male athletes over female athletes. Um, and one of the things that you point out is that the people who are really making the most money are these women who have developed social media followings and are able to then monetize that very quickly. As soon as that rule is uh, is struck down, they're able to very quickly turn that around. Um, and I wonder if you could you could talk about that because I, I think that speaks very highly to our um, maybe un, I don't know the the right phrasing. Maybe our under expectations of what women are doing because we don't pay as much attention sometimes to women. And so we're not realizing that the um, the student in high school, the young woman when she's in high school, is slowly building up this social media following that can be worth quite a bit of money, um, in you know, in her her early college career. Absolutely, and I want to shout out my um, producer Brittany Young, who is a former student athlete herself and who actually wrote that commentary. And um, essentially, one of the things that I think gets erased from the conversation of, of, of NIL is, is the fact that not allowing athletes to benefit or monetize those things while universities are benefiting and monetizing those things, right? Making billions of dollars on the backs of these student athletes and and how, how few of them actually have an opportunity mm-hmm. to then go on to play professional sport and make any of that money back, right, from that that celebrity they had as a student, um, that and the ways that that has an effect, mostly has an effect on the on the less visible sports, right? Because and and the less visible sports are of course those that women participate in, and so one of the things that we were able to highlight in that commentary was that women that women's sports is actually a pretty big brand, right? It's not it's not highlighted. Um, as much on ESPN, but it does exist and they do have a following and social media has given them an opportunity to kind of um, uh, 
to establish um, themselves as athletes and, and as individuals in ways that make them marketable. Because um, if you have five million followers, you can you can translate that into uh, millions of mm-hmm. dollars, even after you're no longer a student athlete, because people because you have that many people who recognize you. And I do think that there mm-hmm. is a way that that women athletes are invisibilized, right? And I think we can even think about that and and, and everything that's happening right now with Brittany Griner, and um, you know, and how little coverage there is of that, you know, kind of connecting that's right. you. We're not having conversations about the fact, you know, that there is a black woman um, being held essentially hostage overseas right now and why she's overseas right now. Right. Like like if um, if WNBA players were compensated equally to men players, would um, you know, would women athletes have to participate um, in the sport year round and around the globe? So I think that there are um, there 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 are multiple you know dynamics at play there, but the commentary gave us an opportunity to kind of highlight the ways, the benefits of 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 um, of that policy and how it will help a lot of students who would otherwise not have access mm-hmm. to monetize their own celebrity because the the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is they may not have it you know they may only have it many of them only have that celebrity for the time that they're a student. And so if you deny them the opportunity to use it then and they can use it later, but they're no longer playing, then what? Right. And so this kind of gives them the opportunity to establish monetary relationships with brands that could potentially continue, even if they're no longer playing professionally. Well, speaking of Brittany Griner, um, Isha, you wrote a, a piece on the way that we talk about domestic abuse with LGBTQ individuals. Um, and, uh, she is mentioned in that piece and we don't need to go into details on that. But one of the things that I thought was really, and this is an older piece of yours, so I'm not sure how well you remember the piece and everything, but one of the things that I thought was really fascinating in that piece was that, um, that LGBTQ, uh, individuals, have a higher rate of being victims of domestic abuse. Um, and you said, you know, we don't often think that because we think two women who are in a relationship that won't, you know, we think of men being the aggressor in domestic abuse so often. Um, and we don't think of, uh, of, of two men in a, in a gay relationship because we often, you know, project this emasculated image onto them and everything. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I, I think those are numbers that people are, are certainly not familiar with on average. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's really a tragedy, ultimately, because it's entire communities of people. Um, not only are LGBTQ folks more likely to experience a particular kind of intimate violence, violence in the home, sometimes family violence, violence from parents, um, but they are less likely to seek support. And that I feel like is really an important part of this story is we, what's happening is, is that we have a narrative around um, uh, like a victim perpetrator narrative that is based on a dynamic that is um on a straight cisgender couple, right? And so if that's your that's your frame, 
then nobody else can fit in there. And, you know, a huge piece of this is that the solution that we offer to people is call the police, Um, you know, like call for help. And so there's a whole range of people who will never do that because the police are not a source of trust and care for them. And there's a whole range of reasons for that, right? Like, because you know, it's like, it's the wrong solution to the problem, right? Like you may be experiencing violence. You would never call a police officer because they would not necessarily understand your relationship. They might perpetrate. There's an, uh, there's a whole lot of research on how um, police perpetrate violence against survivors when they're called onto the scene or they find out. I mean, the case of Daniel Holdsclaw is an example of this, of like who's marginalized in our society and how the police treat those women, particularly women of color, um, queer and trans women, sex workers. So there's one problem of not having a real solution that acknowledges a range of experiences and identities that happens. Um, the other is around... Gender, you know, I remember um, one of the things that happens in my advocacy around um, intimate partner, domestic family violence, I learned from survivors is that one of the reasons that a range of folks might not call the police um, if they're experiencing family violence or domestic violence is because when they arrive, when the police arrive onto the scene, they look at what they see and they, all of their implicit bias is right there, right? And so one of the things that you see is that uh, oftentimes the victims are are um, treated as the perpetrator. Um, and so they just, there's not a lot of trust in the solution, right? So that's like one kind of system systemic level um, issue, which is something that we've been advocating for a long time. One of the reasons, we're also in a backlash moment to a defund the police conversation, and if you ask folks who are advocates for um, supporting people who have experienced violence and abuse in the home, they will tell you that it's the wrong solution to the problem. It's like we actually need trained people who can come in and support a family where um, incarceration is not on the docket as the first and only solution. You know, extrication and incarceration. A lot of times you need counseling, you need support. People don't want to be separated from their families, especially if they're kids. They don't want their parents to go to jail. They just want help. They want the violence to stop, right? And so it's just an example of the the structural incongruity between what's happening in homes, how that impacts people of different identities, and how our solution is really like a one-size-fits-all solution that just doesn't work. Um, The piece around queer relationships and how, what, you know, understanding why people are less likely to seek support is because there, you know, there's a whole lot of really interesting and important work around. This is something Robin mentioned earlier too, the invisibility and hypervisibility that happens for queer folks, right? On the one hand, you're hypervisible as someone who doesn't fit the sort of social, so social norm in your relationship. And on the other hand, the issues you might be facing are just completely you know, unknown. So you often find people that like people who are trying to support queer folks in relationship stuff, whether it's violence or other things, sort of trying to superimpose a gender binary onto the dynamic and assuming that the person who's more masculine presenting is the aggressor. 
uh, and just by default. So that's like not skills-based um, support for people, you know? So it makes sense that folks would not want to call those services that aren't targeted. Um, and it's also very de you know, it's like a very dehumanizing thing, you know, trying to fit your relationship into the mold of a relationship that someone might understand in order to get support that you need. And I remember think, you know, thinking, um, and so what that, what that results in is an entire population of folks that is more vulnerable to harm. Uh, and that's really the outcome of not having support for people that takes into account different lived realities is that you now have people who won't, there's only one solution that's available to them and it might cause them more harm so they won't avail themselves of it. So there's all this vulnerability um, that people are living with. And I think, you know, I, it's like, who is the, this is to Robin's, you know, perfect victim analysis, which is so sharp and important. We saw it with the, you know, the Me Too movement, right? Like who were the sort of first harbingers of that? It was very famous celebrities, white women celebrities, right? That's the sort of, even though the work and the framework was started by black women organizers in the South, right? The like public the, the attention. The Me Too hashtag came from black That's women. Right. Correct. That's right. The work, the uh, the analysis of saying this is happening to me too came from Toronto's Toronto Burke's work uh, organizing in the South, and and I feel you know that's another there's another kind of interesting thing happening there that you cannot understand what's going on if you're not attuned to the phenomena that Robin raised around who's most visible, who's invisible, when are they visible, and when are they not visible, and that is a really helpful. Um, when uh, women of color, young women, black women need help, then the invisibility kicks in. And when it's, it's um, you know, sort of challenging their presence in public life, then the hypervisibility kicks in. So it's really a no-win situation. And it's why a feminist analysis is really, an intersectional feminist analysis is really key in understanding what level, different levels of harm people are experiencing. Well, um, I feel like we could go on for quite a bit. Uh, this has been a great conversation and we are just out of time. Both of you have to get on your, uh, actually today we're doing this the day before the women's conference and, um, both of you are kind of dropping in on some of our classes here at SIU and, uh, and speaking mm -hmm. and engaging with our students. So we really appreciate that from both of you. Um, real quick, um, is, do you have anything you would like to plug if people want to find out more about the Crunk Feminist Collective or about your advocacy or their website, social media, ways that they could uh, interact and follow you? Um, I'll direct folks to the remix, which is our Substack, where where the Crunk Feminist Collective is doing. It's the remix.substack.com. Um, and our weekly essay is free. You just have to subscribe. Um, to it. Uh, and that's where we're doing our writing these days. Um, if folks are interested in the reproductive justice organizing and advocacy work that's happening, I would um, direct them to uh, a coalition of organizations working, especially if you're interested in the Texas work, um, to the National Network of Abortion Funds and the abortion funds that are providing the kind of practical support there. If you get on their website, they'll take you to the coalition of orgs working in Texas. Uh, it's a good place to plug in and send your energy and your and your um, 
resources if you have them to spare um, for this you know big challenge that we're facing uh, soon. And then of course to Equality Texas if you're interested in supporting on the questions of the issues of um, trans liberation and justice that we're working on here in Texas as well. I think those are those are um, really important amplifications. Uh, only, the only thing I would add would be um, our social media, Crunk Feminist at Crunk Feminist on Instagram. And I also want to plug the the um, YA book that some of our colleagues have recently published called oh, yeah. um, Feminist AF: um, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood, which, among other things, among being an amazing an amazing book in general, um, does a really good job of um, offering a genealogy of feminism that begins where it began, which is with Black women. Um, just kind of going back just to some things that Isha shared earlier about how we often have this disorientation about if whether or not feminism um, is something that we can access as women of color and how because of the distorted myths of feminism and the miseducation around it, um, it's, it, it has taken us a long time. It, you know, it took us longer than it should have to find it. And one of the things that Brittany Cooper, Chanel um, Craft Tanner, and Susanna Morris have done in this book is introduce a primer to feminism through, um, through, through the experiences and work of Black feminists, which I think is a really important orientation and place to start. So, um, and of course, Crunk Culture is on a brief hiatus, but we'll be back. Um, in the coming months with more um, cultural analysis and commentary. And yeah, check us out on Substack. All right. Um, like I said, I think we could go on for quite a bit longer. I could at least. I, I've been really fascinated uh, listening to both of you. And I want to thank both of you for your time. Um, my guests today have been Dr. Robin Boylorn and Isha Pandit. They are the keynote speakers for the SIU Conference on Women. They're Keynote address is why you should, and then NT in parentheses, uh, be an ally. Um, so I, I believe that will be live streaming over YouTube uh, if you're interested in checking that out. And uh, thank you both for taking time to talk to me today. And thank you for our listeners for uh, tuning in. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you. Thank you.